Our sermon this morning is on 1 Kings chapter 18 through 19. So turn there in your Bibles, 1 Kings 18 and 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find 1 Kings chapter 18 on page 279. So turn there, and we're going to work through a couple of chapters. We're going to look at the story of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. We've been working through the book of 1 Kings for the better part of two months now. Uh, We saw the life and reign of Solomon. We saw the kingdom of God divided into the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of of Judah. Last week we met the prophet Elijah, kind of one of the more famous uh, prophets in the Bible. And this week we're going to see one of the more famous encounters of the prophet Elijah in the Bible, which is when he kind of goes up against, has this big, exciting, dramatic challenge with the prophets of Baal. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to read and consider and, uh, and, and, yeah, think together about how this applies to our lives. Father in heaven, we pray that you would come here and, and meet us this morning, Lord. We pray that you would prepare us and equip us to hear your word and to receive it. And to be changed by it, right? To to repent of our sins in response to hearing it and to trust in you and to grow in faithfulness so that we can glorify you as your people. We ask you to meet us here and to bless the reading and the hearing of your word together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll start in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. The third year that he's referring to in verse 1 is the third year of this drought that they're in. Three years ago, God came and told Elijah, uh, Tell the people of Israel, tell the king Ahab, that uh, there's no rain, no rain is going to happen anywhere in the land of Israel until I say so, until Elijah, you know, says so through the power of, of God. And so crops are dying Harvests are suffering. People are starving to death. And God sends Elijah to the king, the man who is responsible, more or less, for the, for the drought that they're in because he's the, he's the one who's been leading Israel into idolatry and away from the worship of the true God. Verse 2, And Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. There was severe famine in Samaria, and Ahab had called Obadiah, who was over his household. So you've got Ahab the king. Obadiah works for Ahab. He's kind of his... Uh, you know, manager, uh, you know, a, a member of his kind of entourage, and Ahab, uh, and, and uh, King, King Obadiah has told Ahab, we're going to see in just a minute, to let's go find, let's go find green grass, let's go find fresh water to feed our, our animals. Verse 3, now, the, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut the prophets off uh, of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them in the, a cave by fifties, and he fed them with bread and water. So King Ahab is a bad king, and he leads the people of Israel into the worship of idols, largely, um, at, you know, at the response, or largely in response to the influence of his wife Jezebel. But Obadiah is uh, a member of Ahab's cabinet. He works for Ahab, and Obadiah loves God. And so, while Jezebel is in Ahab's ear saying, "Kill the prophets of the God of Israel," because they are like they're the competition, right? I want to install and normalize and fund the prophets of Baal to promote the worship of Baal in this country, so I want you to eradicate the prophets of God 
You've got Obadiah who works for Ahab, kind of subverting that cause and trying to save the prophets of God and kind of hide them and feed them and make sure that the worship of God can continue in the nation of Israel. Verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water in the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass to save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Our animals are dying, so we need to go find a way for them to have food and drink. So they divided the land between them, verse 6, to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is that you, my Lord Elijah? He's like, I've been, I've been saving and hiding all of these prophets of God, and here's you, like the, the chief, like one of the, the, the biggest, you know, the, the, the leader of the prophets of God. This is amazing. I'm so glad to see you. And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah is like, Ugh, I don't want to do that. Elijah, what have I done? How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Surely as the Lord God, your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And they would say, He is not here. And he would take an oath of the kingdom of the nation that they had not found you. So Obadiah says, Elijah, Ahab is looking for you. He's trying to kill you. Jezebel wants you dead, happy wife, happy life. So Ahab wants to do whatever Jezebel wants him to do. So Ahab is sending out search parties to go kill you. And whenever anyone says he's not here, he's like, you better swear that they're not there. Because if they're there, if Elijah's there and you're, you're tricking me, I'm, you know, it's, on, it's on you. So, so Ahab is, wants to kill Elijah. He's sending people out to kill Elijah. He says, how have you sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab? to kill me. Verse 11. And now you say, go, behold, Elijah is here. But Elijah, as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come to Ahab and I tell him that that I found you and then he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told that what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Obadiah's like, dude, we're on the same team. Like, I, why would you want me to do this thing that is clearly going to get me killed? Because God's not going to let you be given into the hand of Ahab. He's going to hide you, protect you. But that means I am going to take the, take the fall here. Verse 14. Elijah says, go tell your Lord, behold, uh, Elijah. Oh, wait. Yeah. So Obadiah says, and now you say, go tell your, your, the Lord, behold, Elijah's here and he will kill me. Verse 15. Then Elijah responds, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Elijah's like, not a joke. I'm really going to, like, I'm I'm telling you to tell Ahab that I'm here, and I'm not going to run. God's not going to take me. I'm going to show myself to him. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab, and he told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Right? Ahab is saying to Elijah, this drought is your fault. Our animals are dying because of you. The people are turning on me because of you. If you hadn't have made this drought come about, then we would all be perfectly fine here. But now we are all suffering. Ahab, Elijah was very clear that the drought was because the people of God, the, the people of Israel were worshiping other gods, 
right? That, that Ahab had led them into idolatry, and this drought was judgment. This drought was judgment for the people of God because of their idolatry, but this drought was also God establishing himself and showing himself that he is the one true God. The ba- Baal, the God that they were worshiping, was the God of rain. So it's a little ironic, right? Like, we're going to go worship the God who's supposed to give us rain, and the one true God is like, that God can't give you, I'm the only God who's real, I'm the only God who's strong and powerful, I'm going to shut the rain off. And so this drought is here because of the people's idolatry, not because Elijah uh, came to Ahab and told him that a drought was coming, and yet Ahab is quick to blame shift, he's quick to blame other people, for the circumstances that he's in, the suffering that he is experiencing. Rather than receive correction and repent, Ahab blame shifts and points the finger at someone else. He's quick to point out the speck in someone else's eye when he himself has a huge log, a huge plank in his own eye. Verse 18, and Elijah answers him, I, Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the the Baals. I'm not the troubler of Israel, you are. This drought happened because you married a woman God told you not to marry, she encouraged you to worship gods that God told you not to worship, you've led the nation into the worship of idols, even though God told you not to, don't shoot the messenger, don't get mad at me for this drought, right? Be mad at yourself. For, for sinning and inviting the wrath of God, the judgment of God into your life. Verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel and Elijah came near to all the people and he said, people, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. This word limp could also be translated as waver or waffle back and forth, right? How long are you going to keep one foot planted in the camp of worshiping the God of Israel and the other foot planted in the camp of worshiping Baal, despite the fact that the God of Israel said, you cannot worship other gods alongside me. If you're going to worship me, you can only worship me. You cannot worship me and other gods together. The Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Either serve God and serve God alone, or don't even bother serving God at all. Go worship someone else. Go give that other God your full allegiance. God has no interest in being one of several different things that you give your heart to, that you give your life to, that you give your devotion to. God wants to be the sole, singular object of your worship, right? You can, you can like other things, you can enjoy other things, but your worship and your deepest desires 
and affections and, and the hope for your eternal soul, that belongs to God alone. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You'll end up hating one and loving the other. Invariably, one of them is going to take precedence in your heart, and that is the one that you will love the most and serve the most. And God is saying that spot... The God that you love the most, right? The God that you, that you serve and worship is reserved for me. If, if I'm not in that spot, the thing that you love the most and treasure the most and, and worship, if I'm not there, then you might as well hate me. Loving me second most, right? One and one A. If I'm in spot one A, then you might as well hate me. I, I receive uh, the, the secondary love as your secondary affection. I receive that as if you hated me. It's no more preferable to me than if you hated me. Being a lukewarm Christian who identifies as a believer and says to everyone that you are a believer but who lives like a non-believer and who loves the world more than they love God. Being a lukewarm Christian is more offensive to God than simply being a non-believer who is openly unambiguously hostile to God. If you're going to serve me, then serve me. But if you're going to serve someone else, then go serve that God. Don't even bother with pretending to serve me alongside some other. If, if the Lord is God, then worship the Lord. But if, if Baal is God, then go worship Baal. If money is God, then go worship money. If if your career is God, then go worship your career. If, if power is God, then go worship. If, if sex and pornography is God, then go worship those things. If your reputation or if, if being right all the time, if entertainment is God, if your political party is God, if your favorite sports team, like, then go worship that God and stop pretending to worship the true God. And the question that this text is meant to ask us, it's meant to prompt us to ask of our own selves, of our own hearts, is to say, who is God? If, if God is God, then worship God. If some other thing is God, then worship that other thing. Who is it that's receiving the lion's share of my attention, my affection, my trust, my honor, my loyalty? What is it that I care about the most more than anything else in the world? And if the answer is anything other than God, who has ownership rights over you and your life and your soul, if the answer is anyone or anything other than God, then you might as well stop pretending. Stop wasting your time pretending to love God. are hard words to hear. God looking his people in the eye and saying, if you're not going to serve me and be wholeheartedly devoted to me, then I would rather you just walk away from the faith entirely. These are hard words to hear. And they were hard words for the people of Israel to hear when Elijah said them. So to be careful to make sure that we are hearing them as they were intended because, right, the tension, the tension when we read Scripture, we want to, we want to be careful not to, like there, there's a difference between a, a, 
a goat and a weak sheep. There's a difference between a, a Christian who's struggling but earnestly trying to walk with God and someone who is pretending to love God but actually loves the world more than, than God. And so I want, to recon- right, I want to recognize that tension, right? A person who loves God, represents that they love God, but deep down knowingly is more committed to the world than they are to God. And someone who's earnestly trying to follow God but simply struggling with sin and feeling their heart pulled and allured away from God from other things. And so I don't want to treat those two as if they're the same thing. Some of us read this verse and are deeply afflicted and we need to be comforted. Some of us rush right by a verse like this with no introspection at all because we have become far too comfortable and we need to be afflicted. If the Lord is God, then serve the Lord, worship the Lord. If Baal is God, then dispense with the formalities and just worship Baal and serve Baal. And the people of Israel were cut to the quick. It says the people did not answer him a word. They know full well that Elijah's words are dead on accurate. We, we've been limping. We've been wavering. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Right? Let, let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but don't put any fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and I won't put any fire on it. You call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, that is the real God. People are into it. They're like, this is exciting, right? And the people answered, it is well spoken. Let's do this. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took a bull that was given to them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Hours are going by. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Same word as before, right? Israel is limping between God and Baal. They can't decide who they want to, to serve. And these prophets of Baal are limping around. They're, they're standing around like morons because their God is not answering them. And so they're hoping he's kind of, he, he's hung them out to dry and they're hoping that he's going to answer. It's getting awkward. Several hours into it, verse 27, Elijah starts to mock them saying, why don't you cry louder? Surely your God is a God. Maybe he's musing. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. Right? It can't be. It can't be that your God is a fraud. It can't be that your God is making promises that he cannot deliver. It can't be that that the God that I worship and serve is the one true God and the God that you are giving your attention and your affection to is a, a sham. That can't be the case. Maybe he's busy. Maybe, yeah, it makes total sense. Maybe the omnipotent God that you serve is overwhelmed and can't do what is being asked of him. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's, maybe he, his phone's on do not disturb, right? Surely your God 
All you have to do is just ask louder, ask harder. Verse 28, they start doing that. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves with blades. After their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out of them. As midday passed, they raved on until the offering of the oblation. That's the evening sacrifice. So this has been going for hours and hours, more, a full work day. Morning until evening, they're, they're dancing and limping and crying out and cutting themselves. So, well, you know, the, the pagan religions, most pagan religions that weren't uh, the God of Israel, was, they all had a very similar... You know, they were all set up very similar. The God would give you something that you want. Most often it was rain or fertility. But the, and then all of the worship of that God was, was basically some way to uh, either manipulate that God into giving you what you want or to appease that God so that he would give you what you want. So you'd pray, but you have to pray really sincerely. Or you can offer extravagant gifts. And maybe if they're extravagant enough, he'll do what you want. Or uh, there was ritual prostitution. So you commit indecent acts in front of the God and maybe he'll be entertained or impressed and he'll give you what you want. Or in this case, you could cut yourself with swords and, and, and seeing your blood flowing out of you was supposed to evoke pity in the gods or it was supposed to impress the God at how dedicated and devoted you were to this thing that you, that you want. This is forbidden in the Bible in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 14. The prophets are at the end of the rope, right? They're like, we are looking like fools here. Everyone's here watching. And the God that we serve, the God that we've given our life to, is, is hanging us out to dry, and we look like morons. Let's do anything that we can to try to get our God to respond. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. In verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And he took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, to whom the Lord had said, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So the prophets of Baal have had their turn. They failed. Elijah's going to take his turn. He makes an altar. And then he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. Seed is several liters, probably seven liters, something like that, several gallons. And he put, uh, he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. So we have an altar made of stone. We've got wood on top of it. We've got the, the sacrifice on top of it. And so everyone's expecting Elijah to say, God, please bring down fire on this sacrifice and show that you're the one true God. But Elijah says, that's not, we're not going to stop there, Right? The, the, the prophets of Baal have already been made fools of. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stack the deck in their favor even more and make it even more difficult for God to come through so that we can really see with no ambiguity beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is the true God. He says, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And they do it. Then he says, do it a second time, and they do it a second time. Then he says, do it a third time, and they do it a third time, and water runs down around the altar, saturates the wood so that it virtually can't catch on fire, even if it wanted to, and then down the trench, right? The, the trench is filled up with water. So this is like a, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous enough to think that if you put a piece of meat on a grill 
that has no charcoal and no propane, that that meat will just cook itself. It's even more ridiculous to then throw the meat into a swimming pool and then hope that it will cook itself there. But that's kind of what Elijah is doing, right? Fill this up. I want water overflowing, running out. Verse 36, at the, at the time of the evening sacrifice, the offering of the oblation, Elijah came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. God, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that their hearts may be turned back to you. Elijah prays and his prayer is most is chiefly concerned with the reputation of God and the glory of God. Friends, when you pray, you can and should pray for the things that you need. You can and should be honest with God about how you're feeling and what you're experiencing. But your prayer should be chiefly animated by a concern for God's glory, God's reputation. Verse 38, And then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the everything, right? The fire not only uh, cooks and consumes the sacrifice, but it, it, it cooks it, it consumes it, it's gone. It vaporizes all the water that was flowing around. It burns up all the wood, which makes sense, and it burns up and consumes the, the stones, which doesn't make sense. Those don't burn very easily. This is an intense fire. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. There is no question. There is no doubt. The other God failed. The other God didn't show up. The other God had all day. He had every reason in the world to show up and he failed. Our God had answered in an instant. And our God had the deck completely stacked against him. And he didn't just answer with a little bit of fire. He answered with so much fire that he vaporized everything that was within the, the vicinity. And then Elijah said to him, right? He knows, everyone knows, Elijah is the true prophet. Elijah's God is the true God. So he says, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And then Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and he slaughtered them there. I don't see a painting of that in your Christian bookstore. There's songs about that on Caleb. And Elijah said to Ahab, Get up and eat and drink, for the sound of rushing rain is coming. So, so we've had this dramatic, intense event. God has shown up. God has defeated. God has put down the, the other God who says... My one, this is my one thing, right? I'm the God of rain. There are other gods of other things. Maybe they're better than me at that thing, but I, the one thing that I am the God of is rain. No God, I'm unrivaled, unparalleled when it comes to rain. And God says, I'm the God of everything, including rain. I'm going to make a fool out of you and out of your prophets, specifically with this issue of rain. And he does. And the, the prophets of that God are put to death for their sin and idolatry. And then God says, now that we've established who the true God is, now that everyone knows that Baal is not God, 
that I am God, now we can have rain. And Elijah says, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and eat and drink. Rain is coming. Ahab goes to eat and drink. Elijah goes up to the top of the mountain. Elijah bows down, puts his face between his knees, and he says to his servant, go look toward the sea, presumably to say, tell me when the rain cloud is going to come, because it's going to happen. And he goes and looks toward the sea, and he says, uh, Elijah, there's nothing. He says, go again, seven times, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and there's no, there's no rain. I don't know what you're talking about. And then behold, on the seventh time, he says, there's a little tiny cloud, like a man's hand that's rising up from out of the the sea. It kind of feels like the Jer- like the, the army marching around Jericho with Joshua, right? Seven times, nothing happens. And then on the seventh time, God answers and he begins to show up. There's a rain cloud that's forming. And he says, go tell Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So this is amazing. This is a huge miracle. God has provided. God has given rain to his people. God has vindicated Elijah. And Elijah's probably thinking, this is great news. We're probably all going to worship God in Israel now. Maybe me and Ahab can be buddies. I'm going to go to Jezreel with him, and we'll hang out together, watch the game. This is going to be really awesome. I'm really excited about where things are going. Verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So Ahab is probably just as naive as Elijah. Hey, honey, me and Elijah are getting along great now. He let the rain come, so maybe we can all worship God together. Maybe he can come over, we can hang out. Me and you and and Elijah, we can all be buddies. By the way, he killed all the prophets that you hired that worship the God that you believe in. But I think everything's cool because of the rain. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more so, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel is like, no, we're not friends with Elijah. I don't like him. I'm going to kill him. And, and I'm, if, if I don't kill Elijah within the next 24 hours, then may God kill me. That's how de- dedicated I am to killing Elijah. So, eh. so Elijah is like, man, I came to Jezreel. I was hoping we were going to be buddies. Maybe not. Then Elijah was afraid, verse 3, and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So I think I maybe misjudged how uh, stable things were going to be in Jezreel around Ahab and Jezebel. Maybe I need to excuse myself before I get chopped into a million pieces. And he went a day's journey into the wilderness, verse 4, and he came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father. So he's just had this spectacular, amazing, dramatic show of God's glory. And we've kind of put to death all of these idol-worshipping priests. And Elijah is so excited, but then he's like, oh, we're right back where we started. Right? We had this huge victory, and I was excited. The drought is over. Maybe uh, the worship of God is going to be is going to become the, the, you know, normal in Israel again, and the worship of Baal is going to be thrown down and defeated. And then he's like, no, it looks like we're right back where we were. Jezebel is still in power. Jezebel still wants us to worship Baal. Jezebel still wants to kill me. And he's deeply discouraged. Verse 5, he lay down, he fell asleep, and then an angel woke him up and said, get up and eat. And behold, there was, a head, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. This is, I mean, back in two chapters ago, 
he was, God sent birds to bring him food. And now God is sending angels. This is a pretty good gig. Angels are bringing him food now. So he eats and he drinks and he falls asleep and then he wakes up and then the angel of the Lord came again and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he had strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights on his way to Horeb, the mount of God. And then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? You just witnessed this huge, incredible victory. I've personally sent angels to bring you food and provision, right? At, this is the time when you should be happy, ecstatic, excited, right? Filled with, with energy and, and, and courage and ready to take the, the hill. But you're depressed and you're despairing and you're sad and you don't want to live anymore. What are you doing? Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are seeking my life and trying to kill me. God, I'm all alone. I realize that you showed up. I realize that you were faithful. I realize that you emerged victorious over all the other gods, but I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to be faithful to you, and I'm all alone, and I don't want to live anymore. It's it, being all alone with no one to support me, no one to encourage me, no one to help me is terribly, terribly difficult. Verse 11, God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, there was a great fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after all of that, there was a low, quiet whisper. And Elijah heard it, and he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Up until now, God has been speaking and acting and showing his presence in dramatic, spectacular ways, right? God says, go tell the entire nation that a drought is coming and that it's not going to stop until I tell you and you make it stop. God has been providing for Elijah and the widow at Zarephath supernaturally, right? They've got flour and oil that just miraculously replenishes itself until uh, God sends him elsewhere. He comes and has this huge, dramatic, explosive, sensational show with fire and the prophets of, of Baal. God has been dramatically showing himself like a, like a rushing wind, like a loud earthquake, like a roaring fire. But God doesn't always speak like that. Sometimes God speaks and works like a low whisper gently 
quietly, subtly. It's God's prerogative to decide how he wants to speak to his people, how he wants to act, right? It's, it, we, we as a culture have been conditioned to expect God to work in ways that are big and loud and powerful and sensational and spectacular. We expect it. We demand it. We feel entitled to it. If it doesn't happen, we get bored. We get impatient. We get frustrated. It takes patience to wait as God acts in ways that are gentle and quiet subtle God I want you to change this thing about my life my my heart my besetting sins I want you to change this thing about my spouse my kids my job and I want you to do it now I want it to be sensational I want it to be abrupt I want it to be big and and fast Right, God, my, my Christian life is not as exciting as it used to be. It feels boring. It feels mundane. And I want big, and I want sensational, and I want flashy. Sometimes God works in ways that are slow and quiet. Sometimes God changes his people, not overnight, but over years or decades. Sometimes God changes your spouse in the way that you've been praying for him to do, not overnight, but over years and, and decades. Most of the spiritual growth that I have discerned in my own life or in the life of those people around me that are close to me happens slowly over time. I, I, know, some, I know some people who've had these big, dramatic, incredible, right, addiction. Life was just, you know, throwing my life away and God saves me abruptly and incredibly right now overnight. I know some people that have experienced something like that, and praise God that he does. But more, the majority of the people that I know who are walking with God, it's more like they have to, they can't compare, okay, where am I now versus where was I a week ago or yesterday? They have to think, where am I now compared to where was I 10 years ago? How has the Lord worked in my life? How has the Lord drawn me? How has the Lord revealed himself to me? How has the Lord grown me over the last 10 years than over the last 10 minutes or 10 days? And more often than not, that slow process of change doesn't happen through extraordinary, you know, dramatic, extravagant things, but just through the ordinary means of grace. I started attending church. I didn't think much of it. But I started and I stuck with it. I started reading my Bible for just a few minutes each day. Just to listen to what God was telling me in his word. I started praying and meditating on scripture. Pouring out my heart to God. Telling him what I was thinking and feeling. Inviting him to conform my heart to his. I started, uh, you know silence and solitude and fasting and journaling, right? I took these ordinary means of grace and I put them into practice and I stuck with them over time and slowly and subtly, without me even noticing, God slowly, gradually changed me. And now my life is vastly different than it used to be, but it happens slowly and subtly. Friends, if we, if we want to follow God, 
right? We, we have to watch God work, but we have to allow God to work in the way that he has determined to work. It's not always sensational. It's not always wind and earthquakes and fire. Sometimes it's a quiet voice, a low whisper, the ordinary means of grace working over time in our hearts and lives as we just plod along in repentance and and faithfulness. It's a quiet whisper. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? In verse 14, same thing. He's got his spiel down. I've been very jealous for the Lord, for the people of Israel forsaking your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. God, I think this is a losing battle, right? Every victory that we see right on the heels of it is something to be afraid of, something to run from. Jezebel is trying to kill me. It's not worth it. I'd rather just die than go, than run on this treadmill of faithfulness and seeing God provide and then being thrown right back into sin and suffering. It's, it's, it's causing me to lose hope. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. That's not Israel. It's another country. And anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint him to be the prophet in your place. Three guys. Hazael over Syria, Jehu over Israel, Elisha as the next prophet. Put those three people into those three respective offices. And I'm going to use them to accomplish my will. And here's the will that God's going to accomplish with those three. Verse 17, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu is going to put them to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put them to death. So I'm going to use these three servants to kill every person who follows Baal, every person who forsakes the covenant with God in all of Israel. Either Hazael's going to kill them, or Jehu's going to kill them, or Elisha's going to kill them. Elijah, you may be discouraged now. It may look like you're fighting a losing battle now. It may look now like Baal is going to win, and the worship of Baal is going to overcome and overtake the worship of God, but I am working. I am arranging things so that the worship of God will overcome. I am sovereign. I'm not going to lose. I am the God of the universe. Trust me. Hang in there. I want you to install these people and they are going to accomplish my will. Don't despair. Don't be discouraged. And in the meantime, in the meantime, while we're waiting for that slow drip of my will to be brought about, in the meantime, be encouraged that you're not alone. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you've said multiple times, you're the only one left. Everyone worships Baal. No one worships God. You're the only one, and they're trying to kill you. I'm telling you right now, there are thousands of other people just like you who are worshiping God just like you are. You think you're alone. You're discouraged because you're alone. You're not alone. Friends, if you ever feel like Elijah, discouraged, worried, fearful, despairing, alone, and feeling as if 
there's no hope, then you need to hear the words that God spoke to Elijah. And that, right, right, that, that one, God is sovereign. He won't be defeated. He's working things out according to his perfect plan in his perfect timing. And two, you're not alone. You may think you're alone. You may feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. God, God didn't just save us from our sins so that we could be forgiven and spend eternity in heaven with him. God saved us from our sins and God saved us into the church so that we could be strengthened and encouraged so that we can persevere in the faith together here in this life, right? You're, you're not alone, so lean in and be a part of the church. Gather with the church. Worship with the church. Experience the Christian life as it was intended to be experienced among the people of God in the church. Verse 19, he departed and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. And Elijah passed him and he cast his cloak upon him. And just like a way of saying, come with me, like come be my apprentice with a view toward eventually, you know, transferring the, the power that was vested in me to it'll, it'll soon be vested in, in you. And he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and he said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah says, go back, for what have I done to you? By all means, go say your goodbyes, then we'll head out. And he returned from following them, and he took the yoke of oxen, and he sacrificed them, and he boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and he went after Elijah and assisted him. Elisha makes a a firm, a clean break with his old way of life, right? There's no hedging his bets, let me leave my... Uh, resources and my business and my equipment over here so that maybe I can come back to it if this new way of life doesn't work out. He burns his animals that were his only source of income. He burns his farm equipment, which was his only source of income. And he's basically saying, I'm, I'm either with Elijah, following Elijah, proclaiming the word of God with Elijah, and then uh, after Elijah steps aside or, or nothing. I'm, uh, there's, there's nothing for me back there in my old way of life. Interestingly, someone tells, Jesus asks someone to follow him in Luke 9, and they say the same thing. Let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus reads, right? Jesus can tell. He sees this person's heart. And he says, uh, right, he's thinking, Elisha said, let me go say goodbye so that I can make a clean break with my old way of life and follow you with wholehearted devotion and never look back once. But the person that wants to say goodbye to Jesus, Jesus knows full well that it's all a smokescreen, that he doesn't really want to follow Jesus. He really wants to stay home, and he's just trying to think of some way to buy time so that he can find another, another excuse. But that's not what Elisha's doing. Elisha is bought in. He's ready to go, ready to follow God. He's not going back to his old way of life. I'm going to proclaim the word of God. They're going to carry me off the court on the stretcher or in a body bag. Friends, let's follow Jesus together like Elisha did. Right? Following Jesus in costly discipleship, knowing that it's a it's a lifelong calling, trusting 
God, let, let's, let's trust God to provide like Elijah did. Let's follow God boldly like Elijah did. Let's not waver between different options like the people of Israel did. If the world is what's most important, then go chase after the world. But if God is what's most important, then let's serve God and worship God together. Let's, let's listen to the word of God as he speaks to us in a quiet whisper through the ordinary means of grace. And let's follow after Christ relentlessly, even when it's difficult. Because he's worth it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your sovereignty and your supremacy over all things. Lord, we pray that we could be singularly devoted to you as our king. We pray that you would encourage our hearts so that we can persevere in the faith. We pray that you would use us as the church to accomplish that in the lives and in the hearts of one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.